when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's most senior advisor, quit the government this week as the prime minister prepares to undertake a major reset of his premiership. I think there's been unhappiness about the number 10 operation for some time. The the loyalty of members of parliament is to the prime minister. He is the person we want to hear and see on the steps of of number 10. And we've heard far too much, I think, from from advisers over the past 18 months. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be examining a dramatic week in Downing Street, where Boris Johnson lost two of his key most loyal aides. As we heard from the senior Tory MP Charles Walker speaking to the BBC there, their departure could mark the beginning of a new era for the Prime Minister. Joining me to discuss all the drama is political editor George Parker and political columnist Robert Trimsley. And later, we'll be looking at the positive coronavirus news this week, the arrival of the first vaccine that could help normal life return by the spring. How big is the news and how quickly can social distancing end? Health editor Sarah Neville and science editor Clive Cookson will be explaining. Well, it's been quite the week in Westminster with a lot of late nights reporting to get our heads around this dramatic story. But I want to both ask you about these Rasputin figures. They always seem to come to quite a sticky end. We're thinking of obviously Dominic Cummings this week, Nick Timothy for Theresa May, Alistair Campbell for Tony Blair. Why do you think that is, Robert? Well, partly because they've become too visible. They act as lightning conductors for any form of discontent. It's worth remembering that a lot of advisors who managed to do a lot of important work behind the scenes lost a very long time. And even Alistair Campbell, it should be said, lasted a very long time indeed before he became unstuck. Nick Timoth and Fiona Hill uh, under Theresa May, obviously. But I think the fundamental point is as times get difficult, and particularly MPs who are always fractious, are looking around for people to blame for things that aren't happening the way they wish they could happen. If an advisor has become too visible, then they're such an easy target. Mm. And George, you've seen many of these advisors come and go. Sorry for the pun there about Dominic Cummings. They've all been made this week. <laughs> um, did it surprise you at all that this kind of shadowy behind the scenes figure would eventually leave in an unceremonious way? No, it doesn't surprise me at all. As Robert says, when prime ministers get into trouble, their first instinct is to throw overboard the advisors. And, you know, if you listen to Tory MPs, they never or seldom directly criticise the Prime Minister. They always talk about the number 10 operation being dysfunctional, which is code for Dominic Cummings and the vote leave crowd in there. So in the end, it was expedient for Boris Johnson, I guess, to get rid of those people to try and give themselves a chance to reset things. But as Robert said, the, the key thing is you don't become a public figure if you're in those positions. That's the golden rule. If you think about someone like Bernard Ingham, who pretty much stayed behind the scenes as Margaret Thatcher's press advisor, or going further back, someone like Bernard Donoghue, a sort of Labour advisor. But Dominic Cummings became such a public figure that the Prime Minister's own personal standing nosedived after his trip up to mm. County Durham back in April. If you get to the point where your own advisor's behaviour directly affects your own standing as Prime Minister, then 
you're in a pretty dangerous position, I think. Well, it's clear from this week that Mr Cummings does have that public profile, so let's unpack this big story of the week. Boris Johnson's government hasn't really been run by the Conservative Party for the last year. In fact, it has been the Vote Leave campaign, the cabal of pugilistic political operators from the 2016 referendum. Led by Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's right-hand man, they've been at the heart of Downing Street and driving forward his government's agenda, with decidedly mixed results, particularly on the coronavirus pandemic. Their aggressive approach hasn't been universally praised, especially by the new number 10 press secretary, Allegra Stratton, and Johnson himself. All this came to a head this week when Lee Kane, Director of Communications, requested to be the new number 10 Chief of Staff. The Prime Minister said no, so he left and Mr Cummings is following him out of the door. On Sky News, Grand Shapps, the Transport Secretary, praised the aid but pointed out no advisers last forever. We haven't always agreed uh, over everything. That's absolutely right. And um, and you need people in government um, who do that. Um, so, so, yeah, he'll be missed. But uh, then again, we're moving into a, a different phase. Uh, Brexit will be as already. We've already left Europe, but the transition period will be uh, over and, and, and things move on and advisors do come and go. So, George, let's begin with the narrative of events this week, which began on Tuesday. And there was lots of reports and rumours going around Westminster about this leak inquiry into the announcement of taking England back into lockdown on October the 30th. And that's where this tale that brought Mr Cummings and Mr Kane to a sticky end began. Yeah, well, that leak was, as you say, was the starting point of this because it appeared that somebody had leaked the decision to go into a lockdown in England to the press in an attempt to bounce the Prime Minister into making the decision. We know on that Friday afternoon there'd been a meeting and Boris Johnson was wavering about whether we needed to have a full national lockdown, something you'll remember he was dead against. And he was looking at some of the data and some of the data actually, frankly, did suggest that maybe the tiered system was starting to work. Woke up on Saturday morning to see that somebody had leaked the meeting to the press, suggesting the lockdown was imminent. And he was forced to hold a cabinet meeting a few hours later. But he was furious about that. And ministers were questioned about whether they were the source of the leak on the Saturday morning. It was a sign of how angry Boris Johnson was. And over the coming days, the leak inquiry unrolled. And it started to appear that the finger of suspicion, at least, was being pointed at members of Boris Johnson's own team. In particular, Lee Kane, who you mentioned, the director of communications, and Dominic Cummings, the chief advisor, who's a very close friend of Lee Kane, both of them quite keen to get the country into a lockdown as early as possible. And we picked up, didn't we, Seb, on Tuesday this week, that this was the case, that Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings were potentially in the frame for this. And I'm just, you know, things have moved so fast this week, I'm just quickly going through my WhatsApp messages. When I see that at 3.15 on Tuesday was the point at which I messaged Lee Kane to say that we've picked up from a number of sources that you were the prime suspect in the lockdown leak inquiry. He texted me back, nonsense, at 18 minutes past three. But basically, that was the moment when the snowball started to run down the hill. And events moved very fast after that. So we, having made the inquiry about Lee Kane, possibly being lined up for the sack over a potential leak, something he denies. A few hours later, the story was um, given to the Times that Lee Kane, far from being sacked, was going to be promoted to chief of staff for Boris Johnson. That unleashed a barrage of complaints to the prime minister that this was totally the wrong appointment. It wouldn't amount to a resetting of the operation. You'd just be moving people around within the team. There was pushback from Carrie Simons, the prime minister's fiance, and a number of senior women in the party who thought the organisation was far too male dominated already and you needed to broaden the circle of advice. 
Tory MPs complained to the chief whip, saying that this was an absolutely appalling choice and that Lee Kane was the wrong person to put in that job. He needed someone more consensual, a grown-up, someone who could talk to the Tory party rather than another confrontational person. Then, as we know, Lee Kane resigned on Wednesday. Boris Johnson having a very emotional meeting with him at 8pm on Wednesday evening, where, as you said, Seb, Lee Kane asked for the job of chief of staff and Boris Johnson said no. Then there was a lot of panic in the vote leave camp in number 10, which has been very dominant up until now. And then on the Thursday, we picked up very strong signals that Dominic Cummings was indeed going to follow Lee Kane out of the door by the end of the year. And then finally, just before midnight on Thursday night, Laura Coonsberg from the BBC had a text from Dominic Cummings confirming that indeed he would be making himself redundant in number 10 by the end of the year. So it's been quite a week. It has been extraordinary. And I think Robert, if we can just unpack some of the events that have happened here. So obviously the leak inquiry was due to the Prime Minister's anger. You know, one number 10 inside told me that he was apoplectically and apocalyptically angry at the decision that we had gone into this lockdown and he'd essentially been bounced into it by his advisors. And as we said, the finger of blame was pointing towards some of those people in number 10. And again, they categorically deny that they were the source for this leak. But why has the chief of staff role become so contentious and with Mr. Kane's regard to this? Because Boris Johnson doesn't have a chief of staff at the moment. Well, first of all, it's worth remembering that lots of prime ministers don't have a chief of staff. It's another word for very senior person in Downing Street. I mean, I think if you take a step back from all of this, the story of this government has been that Boris Johnson arrives in power you know, in the middle of a Brexit crisis, taking him from Theresa May. The Tory party and the Brexit position is in absolute chaos. And he turns to Dominic Cummings to get him the victory that he needs. He treats his arrival in government as if he's been a member of the opposition. And Dominic Cummings and his team deliver not only Brexit, but a strategy for election victory. And Boris Johnson feels immensely beholden to them. And therefore, when after the election, you know, other leaders might have said, OK, well, I've had my wartime campaign and now I need a peacetime campaign to help me govern. Boris Johnson sticks with the people who've delivered for him. And it's clear that when he first arrived, he had a two-pronged strategy. He had Dominic Cummings and the Vote Leave crowd. And he also had a long-time aide, Eddie Lister, who'd been effectively his fixer when he was mayor of London. And I think he clearly thought he could get some harmony in Downing Street between this steady hand who would keep things rolling and Dominic Cummings, this brilliant man who'd drive them in all kinds of interesting directions, and that there would be an equilibrium. But for there to be that equilibrium, the prime minister needed to maintain it. And the problem was he didn't. He felt too enthralled to his aides and he allowed them too much clout. And Boris Johnson, as we know, is a delegator in power. He sets a sort of notional lead and then he leaves so much to others that there is a vacuum that they stepped into filling. But I think what the events this week showed, I mean, the points you and George were making about being bounced into a lockdown rather speaks to the problem that was at the centre of the government. Actually, how the hell does an aide bounce a prime minister into a position? You shouldn't be in that place ever. And I think what happened is they got too used to being in power, too used to being able to set the agenda, being able to bend the prime minister to their will. And he has come out of it looking terribly weak. He looked weak over the lockdown issue. He also looked weak over whether he could or couldn't choose a chief of staff. For heaven's sake, if the prime minister can't determine who his chief of staff is, A, and have it become the position, and B, that that person could then think they could bounce him into doing it with another media league, mm. it just projects the weakness and vacuum at the centre of Downing Street. And so the question now, which we're all waiting with bated breaths, is can somebody step into that vacuum Either Boris Johnson himself, it's an original thought, or he could appoint someone to do it who can actually restore a bit of equilibrium to the centre of operation. Mm. 
Now, George, we do need to unpack a little bit this idea of what the Vote Leave cabal is. And it's a very potent small group of people because that Brexit campaign, the 2016 referendum, were people who were fighting against the establishment, against the orthodoxy view on EU membership. And they were a very tight group with Mr. Cummings as their kind of figurehead in a way. And the outside world, people have very mixed views on him. Some people like him, some people loathe him. But clearly, he is someone who does inspire a lot of loyalty. And so when he went into Downing Street last summer, he was basically there to force through Brexit, which he did by sacking 21 Conservative MPs, proroguing Parliament, and then eventually having a general election where Boris Johnson won that thumping 80-seat majority. But the Vote Leave team have not really transitioned from being campaigners into governors. And you've had this very uneasy relationship with the Conservative Party, as Charles Walker was talking about, with the media, with civil servants. We've seen an unprecedented number of permanent secretaries leave with morale being very low. And I think all this really came to a head during the coronavirus pandemic because this was a government set up to deliver that levelling up agenda. And we don't know in an alternative reality where there had been more money, there had been more bandwidth, could they have actually done that and done the things Dominic Cummings really cared about? But ultimately, their first year in government had been dominated by COVID-19 and they've really been found wanting. The communications have been, frankly, appalling and they've created enemies left, right and centre. And the feeling that I was picking up is the Prime Minister is fed up with all the fighting. He wants competence, he wants order and that's ultimately what's brought them down. Yes, Think about, you know, one of the principal jobs of being the director of communications, that's Lee Kane's job at the moment, would be surely to keep on side papers that are naturally predisposed to you, like the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph. But both of those papers have been incredibly hostile to the Prime Minister in recent months. And on the day of Lee Kane's departure, the Telegraph put on the front page a picture of the Prime Minister just looking like a broken person. So the, the communications have been very bad, the communications strategy. Then, as Robert was saying, you you ended up in a situation where everything was concentrated in the centre, but with a load of people who were overwhelmed by the task of trying to drive a government from the centre, which is not possible. You need in a government to have, I'm sure this is the direction that Boris Johnson will move in, serious ministers running their own departments, not trying to have everything run from a small group of people in number 10. The fact is the system became overwhelmed. They weren't able to cope. And because relationships had broken down between number 10 and the parliamentary party, Parliamentary Party were furious, but they could sense the weakness of Boris Johnson in number 10. And we've seen this formation in recent weeks of all these research groups, in inverted commas, which are basically pressure groups of Tory MPs realising the Prime Minister's weak and ganging up on the Prime Minister to force him in a different direction. So we've had a, a Northern Research Group, we've had a COVID lockdown group, recovery group, that one was called. But all the signs that the Tory MPs think they can push the Prime Minister around. So Instead of having a strong administration, you know, these hard men in number 10, people like Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings, in the end, they've ended up leaving the Prime Minister looking incredibly weak. Now, the other element, Robert, we just need to finally get into this complicated story, is the arrival of Allegra Stratton. She's the Prime Minister's new press secretary. She was formerly a senior political journalist for The Guardian, the BBC and ITV News. And ironically, she was brought in under a scheme devised by Lee Kane to have daily televised press conferences in a way to circumvent the media and control the government's messaging. Now, she was hired over the head of Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane. They wanted to hire someone called Ellie Price, who's a more junior journalist at the BBC. But Boris Johnson made a pact directly with Allegra Stratton that she would be in the room. She would have full access to the prime minister because to do that job, 
that's ultimately what you need to have. But the story that was briefed to the Times about Lee Kane becoming chief of staff really said she would be boxed out. She would not have that. And this fed into this idea George mentioned that number 10 was very macho and there were these men throwing their weight around and that they were trying to box out the one senior woman in that operation. And combined with the disapproval of Carrie Simons, who's Mr. Johnson's fiance, the mother of his son, Wilfred, and herself a former Conservative Party senior operative, that really seemed to do for Mr. Kane and Mr. Cummings. So Mr. Atten does seem to be a coming power within Downing Street and within the Johnson government. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, I think you have to take a longer view of this. What you're watching in Downing Street is really nothing more complicated than a medieval court, a royal court in which courtiers fight for the ear of the leader. When George was talking earlier about, you know, people only criticising the number 10 operation rather than the prime minister directly. You know, I remember back to some of the the Tudor rebellions and the pilgrimage of grace was all about Henry VIII's bad advisors. And it's really no different now. And what happens is different factions compete for the ear of the prime minister and time with the prime minister and the attention of the prime minister is the real currency that matters. And the point is, they tried to keep Allegra Stratton out of that room, stop her having the prime minister's ear. She quite understandably, since she was going to be speaking for him in public, said, well, no, I have to have it. So that's what that was about. Below it is the broader panel about what type of government you want to be, because coming with Allegra Stratton is the notion that maybe we don't need to go out and try and make enemies of everybody all of the time, that we might actually get further if we are a little less combative, if we put forward our arguments in ways that are conciliatory and attempt to build consensus, because all governments become less popular as they move along. And so it's not just about people in Downing Street about whom no one else needs to care very much. It's about the nature of the government, the direction. And one of the key points is, this is a moment for Boris Johnson to reset his government, to say, I'm going to move in a different direction, or at least a different style. I don't necessarily think you'd see wildly different policies, but certainly a different approach. For that to happen, however, Boris Johnson has to actually know how he wants to reset his government, where he wants to go. Otherwise, we're simply going to see another version of this down the line with different people fighting for his attention. This whole Farago has obviously been a bit of a distraction from the main issues, which is the coronavirus pandemic and running the country. And the opposition leader, Keir Starmer, has not taken kindly to it. He told LBC, for one, he isn't happy about the soap opera. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, We're all worried about our health and our families. We're all worried about our jobs. And this lot are squabbling behind the door of number 10. It's pathetic. Pull yourselves together. Focus on the job in hand. This is obviously a fight for what the next four years are going to look like, what kind of prime minister Boris Johnson is, and can he run a more effective government, which ultimately is going to be put up against Keir Starmer at 2024. I think there will be a change of tone and style. I think Boris Johnson will probably, once Dominic Cummings and the Vote Leave crowd have left number 10, revert more to the style of Boris Johnson we saw during his eight years at City Hall in London. Because I've always thought that Boris Johnson actually once Brexit was done and the transition period has ended, hopefully with a trade deal with the European Union, a page can be turned. And, you know, at the moment, things look desperate in number 10, don't they? It's chaotic, acrimonious, shambolic. But, you know, take one step back. It is possible to imagine an alternative scenario, isn't it, in 2021, where a vaccine is deployed, we start to come out of the pandemic, the economy starts to pick up, because frankly, there's not really any other direction for the economy to go in. Boris Johnson brings a new team into number 10. And we start to see more of the sort of the prime minister who tries to put a smile back on the country's face, the kind of person who was at City Hall, which means bringing in a team of people who are less confrontational, 
who try to bring the parliamentary party and the public and the media along with them on their agenda. So you can see Boris Johnson striking a totally different tone. But at the moment, it looks desperate for him. But you can imagine if he plays this well, there is a different scenario for him in 2021. George and Robert, thank you. Aside from all the political shenanigans in Westminster this week, there was some overwhelmingly good news. Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine appears to offer 90% protection. We're still awaiting the full safety data and the vaccine has yet to be approved, but it is seen as something of a game changer. Jonathan Van Tam, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, welcomed the vaccine, but did sound a little bit of caution. Frankly, we're in the middle of the second wave and I don't see the vaccine making any difference for the wave we are now in. I'm hopeful that it may prevent future waves, but this one we have to battle through to the end without vaccine. Clive Cookson, welcome back to the podcast. Tell us about this vaccine and why this has been heralded as such good news. It's big news because this is the first vaccine to give results of what are called phase three clinical trials. That's when tens of thousands of people are injected either with the experimental vaccine or with a placebo, a dummy jab. The US Food and Drug Administration was saying anything above 50% would be acceptable. And if it was safe, they would um, approve it. 90% is above anything that anyone was expecting, I think. We'll get a fuller readout of the data probably in two or three weeks' time, and then the regulators will move very, very rapidly to see whether they can approve it through what's called an emergency use authorization. It's conceivable, if all that goes well, that we could begin immunizing here before the end of the year, but probably more likely in January. Sarah Neville, that is the question really, is when immunisation is going to begin? And the UK, if I'm right, has 40 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine on order with 10 million of them ready to roll straight away. That's right. And plans are definitely underway within the NHS in the expectation that there will be an opportunity to begin rolling this out before Christmas. And we were one of the first countries to actually strike a deal with Pfizer-BioNTech for this vaccine all the way back in July, which has had the advantage of giving us four months as a country to prepare to deliver it because it has to be kept in ultra-cold conditions. But Stephen Powis, the NHS National Medical Director, said at a number 10 press conference on Thursday that the NHS is very used to this kind of thing because it's used to mass flu vaccination programmes. But this is actually a very different animal, this Pfizer vaccine, than a normal flu vaccine. The actual delivery challenges of this vaccine are much greater. Well, Clive, I think the fundamental question people want to understand is how important is this vaccine going to be to getting life back to normal? As Professor Van Tam was saying at the beginning there, this is not going to help for the current second wave, but it could help in the future. How much vaccination needs to take place for you to start lifting some of those social distancing measures, for example? Essentially, the first thing this will do is to protect the very elderly. 
priority will go, first of all, to people, elderly people in care homes and the staff looking after them. Then the priority list goes down in age bands. Then younger people with special risk um, or comorbidities. So the first thing it'll do in letting life get back to normal is enabling the people who are most vulnerable to feel safer. I think we'll be well into the middle or late next year before there are enough supplies to give the so-called herd immunity, which will stop the virus spreading through the community. And even then, we don't know whether this virus or the several others that will follow on will just prevent serious illness, which would be wonderful, but still allow infection to pass, or whether it will be an ideal stopper of the pandemic because it'll prevent infection. Well, there is the question about anti-vaxxers and how prominent they are going to be during the rollout of this vaccine and others. It's something Boris Johnson was asked about at PMQs this week in the context of Kate Bingham. She's head of the UK's Vaccines Task Force and has got herself into a little bit of hot water over her use of public funds. In response to a question by Keir Starmer, the opposition leader, Boris Johnson defended Miss Bingham and her work combating the anti-vax narrative. Uh, Mr Speaker, I think he's referring to the Vaccines Task Force and after days in which the uh, Labour Party has attacked the Vaccines Task Force, I think it might be in order for him to pay tribute uh, to them uh, for securing uh, 40 million doses. And by the way, the, ca- the, the, the expenditure to which he refers uh, was to help raise aw- awareness of vaccines, to fight the anti-vaxxers, uh, Mr Speaker, and to persuade the people of this country, 300,000, to take part in trials without which we can't have vaccines, Mr Speaker. How important do you think this is going to be, Sarah? And of course, there's not just going to be the Pfizer vaccine. The success of this suggests there's going to be many other vaccines that will prove positive as well. I think it's hugely important in the minds of the government and the NHS. And we rather tellingly saw Jonathan Van Tam, the deputy chief medical officer, who always has a very nice turn of phrase. When he was talking about the mum test, he said that he would unhesitatingly be advising his own 78-year-old mother to get vaccinated and indeed said that if it were ethically and morally permissible, he would put himself at the front of the queue to get the vaccine. So I think we're going to be seeing quite a lot of this almost performative stuff. Politicians saying, you know, we're more than happy for our own loved ones, our own families to have this. So that demonstrates the absolute confidence we've got that no corners have been cut here because it is constantly emphasised that the only bits of the process that have been speeded up are the ones that can safely be accelerated. The, the, the timescale, of course, that it's taken us to get this vaccine is uniquely short. And crucially, parts of the data have been shared with the regulator here, and the same has happened with some of the other international regulators. So I think that emphasis on safety, on all the important processes having been weighed just as thoroughly as they normally would be, is going to be crucial to persuading the public to accept the vaccine. 
And finally, Clive, how does this play into the government's overall coronavirus strategy that obviously the government has cautiously welcomed the vaccine because they're still not 100% sure yet that it's going to get the sign off and they obviously don't want people relaxing from social distancing too soon when we're in the midst of that second wave. But we've heard a lot about mass testing this week also being a part of that. So how do you think this is going to look and does this mean, do you think we're not going to have any further lockdowns when this one finishes in England on December the 2nd? Very, very hard to answer that last question. I think you can look on the strategy as having three parts. The most successful so far, compared to expectations, has indeed been the vaccine task force. The UK has more coronavirus vaccines on order per head of population than anywhere else in the world. On top of that, there is indeed the testing, tracing and isolating program. That has had a much rockier road. The latest developments are to use much quicker so-called lateral flow tests, which give results within half an hour and don't need special lab equipment. We saw an evaluation this week by Public Health England Porton Down Lab and Oxford, showing that they were sensitive and accurate enough to work these lateral flow tests. They're being used in the pilot in the city of Liverpool, where everyone who wants to get tested can be. And I think that finally, in 2021, the testing and tracing and isolating part of the programme will go ahead. And then we can look forward, I hope, also finally to some better drugs than are available at the moment. Clinicians are learning very successfully, I think, how to treat people with existing drugs. But sometime next year, we'll get some new drugs that will improve the prospects of people who are not vaccinated or don't isolate properly and become ill. Well, despite these challenges, this is obviously very good news. And it's good to see that the UK is heading on a better trajectory on coronavirus. And it's obviously a testament to all the scientists who have done record-breaking work on the vaccine. Clive and Sarah, thanks for joining us as always. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And you can also leave us a nice review on the Apple Podcast Store if you feel like it. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Josh Delamere. The sound engineer was Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. 
Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.